Alexander Price, and you're listening to The Number Station. Over the past three years since I first launched this podcast, from time to time, the show has gone through transformations, even while there are themes that run through all of the different areas of focus. So I've been feeling lately like it's time for a new transformation. I think everybody right now is going through a period of changes where a lot of the plans that we had for the future and goals that we had um, held in mind as futures, you know, that we were looking towards and aiming for became derailed. And I don't know about you, but I've been going through a period of just feeling quiet, not even necessarily regrouping, but I suppose just being more inclined toward silence than speech. And I've felt that what brings me out of that is really any small sparks of encouragement, especially from strangers, expressing even the smallest hints that speech has value and purpose and that we're not just surrounded by an insentient emptiness. Anyways, I don't know if that makes sense or resonates with any of uh, you, but in any case, I've been feeling like it's time to, um, yeah, maybe start to regroup again and find new direction. And so out of my sort of brooding pensiveness, I've come out with the idea that what I, you know, feel most interested in talking about again right now um, would be the Iliad and the anger of Achilles. I've been thinking about this story. I've told this uh, story before, and I'll probably tell it again. But not very long ago, I spent uh, some time on a Native American reservation with one of my friends who uh, lives there, um, an indigenous person who was a friend and has a farm out, you know, in the western desert in the United States. And um, so I was helping him prepare his uh, farm for planting. We actually did some planting too, but um, the the day that I'm thinking of, we were just sort of preparing the ground. We were removing all of the uh, weeds from the dirt. And there's nothing but flat earth in almost all directions and open sky. So it's, you know, very hot. And you're working outside. There's no shade, really. And I'm not really... I don't exactly remember the conversation, how it first came up. But he asked me if I believe in Satan. If I believe in the existence of Satan. And I thought about it for a minute. And then I replied, I believe if Satan exists... He's a part of nature like everything else. And I think, you know, one of the implications of that is that we sometimes have this idea that um, the way to fix the world, the way to fix whatever is uh, within the circle of our immediate or extended awareness is to remove all of the bad guys. I suppose just like remove them entirely from existence, and if not remove them, 
then at least to transform them somehow into good guys, if that's possible. I'll just, you know, leave this for a moment. And there's another part of uh, this experience that has really struck me. It really struck me at the time and has really stayed with me was that this um, area we were on, you know, basically a, a desert plain and uh, the windstorms when they happened were just wild and overwhelming and we had a, a very tiny uh, little cement structure that um, we were able to go into for shelter. I, he he slept there. I, I had a tent with me and I mean this little, I, I'm not going to call it a house or a hut, but it was just a little, you know, cinder block, four walls that were maybe, let's say, six feet by ten feet or something. When the storms come, would come, the wind storms, we would have to go inside and just sit there and wait for them to go and uh, to pass. And it could be hours. It, they could be going for hours, and there was nothing you could do. And um, <clears throat> there was this one day I remember. I remember his resignation to it. Um, because, you know, I, we would be sitting there, maybe me sitting on an upside down bucket and him in a, a lawn chair or something and the doors open there. I don't know if there even was a door, but, uh, you know, we'd look outside and watch this wild windstorms that were just, I mean, first of all, blowing dust everywhere, but also anything, any, anything that was outside of the hut was also fair game. Um, you know, any chairs, any cans full of, who knows, nuts and bolts, um, any gardening tools, anything that was outside whatsoever, tarps, you know, garbage, it didn't, whatever was outside would also just be blown away. Even if it was stuff that you, uh, uh, valued, you know, um, too bad. It's just, you know, there's nothing you could do. And so that's how I kind of, was struck by his, you know, sort of this sense of resignation of just like, you know, I can't control the wind. What am I supposed to do? You just sit there and wait for it to pass. Um, and one day while we were sitting there doing this, just watching and waiting, this massive snake slithers into the doorway. I remember it was yellow and white and I'm guessing it was probably at least four feet long. And, uh, I mean, the thickness I would describe like the size of a Pringles can or, um, I don't know, I can't think of any other examples of what's that same kind of cylindrical shape and thickness, but, um, you know, maybe, I don't know, three or four inches across at its widest point. It was a big, big snake. And, um, you know, it just kind of slithered into the door and looked at him, looked at me, and then just slithered past. And I was like, holy shit. And, you know, he was he was just looking at it like it was, you know, another um, something passing by in the dust storm. Not any more interesting than a lawn chair flying by or a piece of garbage or whatever else, you know the storm might bring. I imagine I said something along the lines of, holy shit, that was a gigantic snake. And um, he didn't have anything bad to say about it, or, or he didn't seem to think, you know, any any kind of 
he didn't certainly didn't seem to be afraid of it. He wasn't afraid of it. And actually, all he said, I remember, was something along the lines of like, yeah, I hope he goes out there and eats those fucking gophers that keep killing my corn. He hated the gophers. He despised the gophers. They were they were really like uh, far more his enemies than any uh, big ass gopher eating snakes. And another thing I want to mention in this context is the way that, you know, from whatever contact I've had with indigenous people, I also uh, had a boyfriend for three years who was uh, indigenous. He was uh, native Hawaiian. And um, one of the things that always struck me in my, you know, interactions, both with him and with, you know, uh, people who grew up in indigenous communities more generally, is the way that... um, very often they don't seem to have the same inhibitions or um, feelings of self-judgment about anger or even hatred, that um, certain emotions are aspects of uh, bodily experience that more Christianized cultures identify as uh, bad feelings, feelings that bad people have, that you're not supposed to have, um, feelings that, you know, when you can't control yourself and you feel them, maybe afterwards you feel guilty. I've, I've gotten this impression that many indigenous people don't actually have that um, pejorative feeling about emotions like anger and hatred, that those negative emotions, the, the emotions that we would, you know, label as bad emotions are... Uh, you know, more integrated into normal life experience and not seen as something, um, certainly some, certainly not something to feel guilty about, a source of shame or guilt. Um, and there, and I don't think, you know, there's that sense that like the path to self-perfection is by eliminating negative emotions. And I'm saying that not necessarily, um, to imply that it's the right view I would point out that, uh, you know, in Buddhism, there's certainly a concept of destructive emotions. But even then, even then, there is more of an integration where in Tibetan Buddhism, for example, the Buddhas have wrathful activity, and that's considered, it can be done in an enlightened way. Um, But all of this is kind of meant to um, lead into this new project I'm intending to launch now about the anger of Achilles and the story of the Iliad. I'm certainly interested in the ancient classics, as you probably know by now. But I'm also interested in some of these big questions about um, security and uh, protection, self-protection, certainly perceptions of wrongdoing and that gray area where one's personal fight, not necessarily personal, personal or communal fight, collective fight for justice overlaps with the possibility of either being wrong and becoming a perpetrator or becoming a perpetrator by perpetrating your own injustices that appear to you to be good, or even just by overuse of force um, or use of excessive force, you know, crossing over that line where enforcing justice becomes 
perhaps revenge or just exchanging one injustice for another one, if that makes sense. So I think a lot about snakes, both in indigenous forms of shamanism, some forms of, you know, Buddhism, mystical traditions where people think about or uh, consider themselves capable of perceiving the presence of spirits. There's a idea, I have a particular source in mind that I'm thinking of right now, um, where this first, this idea first really kind of struck me. Um, it was a class, a book uh, Kimberly Patton had us read in her class on trees called Faces in the Forest, which was uh, uh, written by an indigenous man from Canada. Well, present-day Canada. And at one point he just mentions how some spirits are in bodies and some spirits are not in bodies. And either way, you know, they're still spirits. The, this idea, you know, it just hit me at the right moment. And I suppose it also combined with an idea that I learned from the Baal Shem Tov, that angels appear as men. They, Some of them are men, or maybe rather it's the other way around. Some men are angels. That being an angel might be more of a either a, a certain pattern of behavior or uh, even way of mind. And then also by implication, you know, the Baal Shem Tov would never say this, but I think that I also perceived the flip side of it being that demons also, you know, men can be demons. I don't think that's, you know, a fresh and new idea. But essentially, the, you know, that angels and demons can be beings that aren't in bodies, but they can also just be, you know, we can also just be talking about humans. And it's more of a behavior than, you know, necessarily just a physical appearance of, you know, the angels are white people in long modest Victorian dresses with flowing blonde hair and the demons are, you know, dark skinned and animal with animal like features and little horns and tails. I mean that, that association of uh nature as demonic is another idea I'm super interested in. But to bring this back around to the snakes, I've been thinking a lot lately about if we were to look at the snake as a metaphor, what would it represent would it represent anger or perhaps maybe it would represent fear because when i encounter a snake certainly that's what i the emotion i feel is fear so maybe the snake is like this external represent representation or materialization of fear for me of uh you know maybe a condensed symbol of whatever everything i'm afraid of and again like when i say you know snake is a symbol of fear like Obviously, there's some objective legitimacy to that in the sense of, like, no, the snake isn't a symbol of my fear. My fear is a response to the presence of a very serious and very real mortal danger. Is it really correct to say that the snake, snake is a... a creature that is particularly swift to anger i mean because really if you think about it if and if you do you know perceive this uh creature as part of nature 
we don't perceive in snakes you know emotions or feelings that we don't also have in ourselves the desire to protect yourself particularly a lot of the behavior that we perceive as uh we perceive correctly as you know extremely dangerous in snakes uh from their side is self-protection i have those feelings too of self-protection and you do and sometimes those um self-protective impulses manifest as anger one thing that i think is rather extreme in the snake is um that it only really has one i mean of course there are all so many different kinds of snakes too but i'm you know speaking of about venomous snakes poisonous snakes and you know one thing that i think is rather unique about it, it's not unique but uh it's uh certainly striking about the um poisonous snake is just that it really only has one degree of self-protective behavior which is kill i suppose that's not true there is a warning there's a level of warning also with the rattlesnakes for example but i i suppose you know i'm a little meandering a little bit the point was about how um the snake is a symbol of danger like the source of that danger is its self-protective behavior and those kinds of you know emotions and self-expressions that you know that we would label as not only label as bad perhaps even evil that's an interesting you know element too that i haven't even mentioned is the snake is a symbol of evil um damn i forgot what i was saying i suppose i was what i what i was about to say was about how we uh it's much easier for us to perceive those that snake aspect in others without understanding that we have it also in ourselves defensiveness self-defensiveness self-defensive behavior self-protective behavior and not only do we have it but we need it it keeps us safe we would die without it i tend to focus especially on you know very very personal levels of signification i suppose in narratives generally in their interpretation but there are also social and political levels here that i do think are very interesting and maybe we'll get into that in the iliad because the setting for the book is a war and the plot may be personal but the context is still a war between two nations so perhaps this if it doesn't give a sense of what this new project is going to look like it certainly at least gives a certain introduction or a prelude into the next chapter so i want to talk briefly about a course of action for working through the iliad for the next episode so i've been poking around online finding commentaries and these sorts of things that i might want to draw on while we read through the iliad and um i do want to say that uh if you want to buy a copy of the iliad and read along i certainly would encourage it the translation i believe that is the one i'm going to be reading is um it's by richmond latimore l a t t i m o r e latimore if you buy anything he translated it's impeccable quality you can't go wrong 
with Lattimore and a lot of times when I read, you know, his translations and and compare with Greek, I can't imagine being able to improve on both the quality and precision, but also the artistry with which he translated ancient, you know, Greek texts. So I certainly would recommend the translation of the Iliad by Richmond Lattimore. I can't really speak specifically to any of the other translations, but I feel pretty confident if you stick to any translations published by Penguin Classics or Oxford are going to be good, um, you know, really top quality. And then um, if you speak any, uh, if you're able to read any Greek, of course, you know, it's hard to beat the um, Harvard Loeb editions, but you probably don't need me to tell you that for their, you know, side by side English and Greek. It's super convenient. And there's also a book that I want to um, work with, especially right here at the beginning. The whole thing is online. It's so it's called the uh, the anger of Achilles, and it's by Leonard Mulner, and you can find it uh, online if you if you search for the anger of Achilles by Leonard Mulner, it should come right up. So I'm going to be working through that, uh, looking at that, especially using that, you know, especially right here in the beginning, for the next uh, um, episode, rather than diving directly into the Iliad. I want to first start with. Um, its relationship to Hesiod's Theogony, which is something, there's a chapter in his book about Hesiod's Theogony and its relationship with the Iliad. One chapter, maybe two chapters about um, Hesiod. So anyways, as we move through it, I'll also keep looking at um, commentaries and uh, other secondary literature. But if you're interested in reading along, then I would recommend, you know, going ahead and if you want to have a look at Hesiod's Theogony, which is available for free online in, you know, English translation, they have like a, a old, you know, early 1900s translations on sacred texts. But if you just search for Hesiod, H-E-S-I-O-D, Theogony, T-H-E-O-G-O-N-Y on Google, you you should be able to find it. And just, I mean, I don't know. It, it, it's worth it's certainly worth reading if you haven't read it before uh, or, or um, refreshing your memory. But then you also might, um, if you want to go ahead and purchase a copy of the Iliad, have at it, or just find, a, find one online. And maybe, um, yeah, if you search for Iliad online, the first result that comes up for me in Google is uh, on MIT Classics. Oh, yeah, it's the Samuel Butler translation. This is one of those old ones that is really easy to find cheap on Amazon just because I think it's out of copyright, so everybody prints it. But um, if you want to read it online, it's very easy to find the Iliad online. And maybe maybe we can try and have a, a, a read of book one for next month, but... Um, when I, you know, when I say book one, it's not a whole book, you know, it's, this is like an ancient book, so it might be at most, ten, you know, I'm, I'm guessing 10 pages in a printed copy, but who knows, you know, it's, it's not, uh, 
uh, a book the way we think of like you know a book as a 400 page book so we might look at book one for next month but we might not get to it yet um maybe it's it, it it's also you know a fine time just to collect um materials or make a plan or maybe you just want to listen along it's uh your business but for 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 uh the you know the foreseeable future this is what i'm hoping to kind of start working through is uh the anger of achilles and the iliad and all of the fun related ideas and associations that come up along the way i'm not sure if i'm going to keep go back to calling to calling it practical neoplatonism maybe it's time for a new name who knows but one way or the other i think uh, it's time to sign off from the number station. Eight zero eight four one nine eight and.